0: me like nine book proposals to even <laughs> to get over to like a year and a half to get to a point where my agent would say okay we can send this out <laughs> like i'm just circling around these yeah, ideas yeah, yeah. Of, of connection and, and vulnerability and trusting and openness mm-hmm. versus being fearful paranoid shut off and it's you dichotomy. can see this sort of this this dualistic way uh-huh, of uh-huh. being there are, a lot of, there are a lot of examples in, in American culture right now of people being open, open minded, and fluid, yes, yes. versus sort of closed down and fearful.
1: Welcome back, listeners, to another Doctor Who Create podcast. Today, I have psychopharmacologist, psychiatrist, and author Julie Holland with me. She's currently practicing in New York City, and we're excited to have a great conversation. So thanks for being here today, Dr. Holland.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure.
1: <laughs> so before we begin, um, what's what's kind of a day in the life of Dr. Julie Holland nowadays?
0: So, mm, day in life. So I see patients two days a week, Okay. and the other five days a week, I'm... Struggling to write a book. I mean, this is uh-huh. my fifth book, and for some reason, this has absolutely been my hardest book. So oh, wow. That's where I spend most of my time. And I do things like yoga or. I go outside and go ice skating or cross country skiing or things like that. I have a couple of kids. I'm very active in my little community up where I live in the boonies. Oh and a couple more things. I mean one is that I'm the I'm the medical monitor for MDMA PTSD research and that keeps me somewhat busy. Mm-hmm. And then I do a lot of drug policy activism. I was very involved in uh, New York in terms of, of helping with their medical cannabis program and then helping to encourage them to just go full legal which will be happening soon so um, I've been I've been trying to sort of uh, spread the word about about medical cannabis and about uh, people not going to prison for using cannabis uh so that's been that's been taking up a good amount of my Mm -hmm. time it's just kind of like drug policy stuff yeah and you know i have kids and they require a certain amount of you know feeding and watering (laughs) uh as does my husband (laughs) so you know i have like sort of that classic work home life balance issue and i have opted to not see patients five days a week yeah and that's really been great for me okay
1: that's good yeah, not, I not to everybody
0: has that option. Right, I know. that's true. That's Sometimes true. Sometimes you got it, it.
1: <laughs> and I know you're you've been a loud advocate for, of medical marijuana. I have been a loud
0: course. advocate. <laughs> <of> <laughs> so I know. wanted
1: to ask how how I, often you have these kind of like speaking engagements, like you did this this past weekend, and yeah. where we are.
0: Well, um, you know. Uh, I I would prefer to have fewer speaking engagements to the right people than to be talking all the time about it. And you know, one of the places that I put some of my of my energy and my focus is on TV. You know, I've been involved with the uh, Sanjay Gupta's uh, Weed documentary series and a couple of uh, film documentaries, and just like going on you know the today show or cnn Mm -hmm. or something anderson cooper facebook live stream or something so you know um what's nice about being in new york city actually is that it's it's easy to reach a lot of people yeah and it's not always a good use of my time to like go to every single thing so i'm, I'm getting more sort Spread of picky yourself. about what i what mm-hmm. about what i say yes and no to speak to fewer of the right people yeah around. like yeah. the but like the cnn like the sanjay gupta documentary series was what had probably the most impact I yeah think, of, yeah yeah of anything i've done in terms of teaching people about teaching sanjay about cbd so that he could teach america about cbd right and that was
1: like 2013 to 2015 the I think it was like a two-year yeah. series that was so they ended up released doing in three like, parts. They ended
0: up doing, I think, four. So that, how, how did that, that, make, was a good that thing kind
1: of come up? Like, were you approached by his so I knew, team?
0: Yeah, I mean, I knew Sanjay and his production team from... They had done a one-hour episode in CNN a while back on happiness and, like, what makes people happy and what's mm. the great chemistry of happiness and this sort of thing. So I talked about MDMA and psilocybin and psychiatry and antidepressants and just, you know, sort of the pharmacology yeah. of happiness as as well as I understood it back then. But I ended up you know, it was a really good interview, it went well I ended up staying in touch with the producer and when this we did something on MDMA, and then we did something on cannabis. And then, you know, I started learning about CBD and teaching him about it. He taught Sanjay about it. We decided to make that a, ma- a major part of the first documentary. And it really, it, it had a tremendous impact. I think a lot of people didn't, had never heard of CBD, had right, no idea exactly. how it worked. Um, you know, for your people listening at home, <laughs> CBD is the non-intoxicating, a non-intoxicating component of cannabis. Because cannabis is a lot of different chemicals. Mm-hmm. Some get you high, some don't. CBD is particularly good for treating seizures, nausea. It's a great anti-inflammatory, antioxidant. I use it quite a bit in psychiatry because it helps to enable a sense of calm and focus uh, that you might get, say, from a combination of like Xanax and Adderall. The problem with most of the medicines in psychiatry that calm you is they sedate you. And the problem with most of the medicines that help you focus is they're pretty, uh, you know, activating and speedy. Oh, I see. So CBD There's is like something that actually helps him. you focus and helps to keep you calm, but it is, uh, it's not particularly sedating or activating. So it's really useful for psychiatry, and I been sort of recommending more and more that a lot of my patients go on it so I know what brought this up so um one when I started sort of getting involved with with modifying the New York medical cannabis program I went downtown to talk to these people from the the New York State Assembly Mm -hmm. and I started my talk by telling them that the thing that would help us the most to address the opioid epidemic is if they could include chronic pain and opioid use disorders or people who are you know Addicted or junkies, as we say. If those people could be allowed to enter the the medical cannabis program, that would be immensely helpful. I've been learning a lot about using cannabis to treat pain and using cannabis or CBD to get people off of opioids. Oh, okay, interesting. um, I've been... You know, I know patients who've done that, I've had success with some of my patients doing that. And I also have a patient who used psilocybin, which is mushrooms, magic mushrooms, to get off of opioids. So you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's uh, a lot of ways to help people sort of change their behavior. Mm -hmm. CBD is looking like something that can really help people quit smoking. Uh, pull back on their opioid use because it's a good anti-anxiety medicine you know one of the things that drives addictive compulsive behavior is feeling anxious and so if you're less anxious you're less likely to engage in these compulsive self-soothing behaviors because you're already soothed so i think that what we're going to see over time is people using cannabis or cbd to treat drug addiction mm-hmm. and certainly there are really interesting studies going on in America now where they're using psilocybin mushrooms to get people to quit smoking cigarettes or to quit using cocaine so there's a whole field of psychedelic medicine yeah that I'm really interested okay, in okay. and I started getting interested in it at, at Penn yeah yeah, yeah. you I know. know I was I was a biological basis of behavior right. major like same, same. like any good pre-med <laughs> I was all BBB but I went to Penn because of BBB you know, I was gonna have to like double major if I went to any of these. Other exactly, schools. it's like,
1: a great overview and um, intersectional
0: major. Penn had something that nobody else had yeah. back then, and that's you know why I went to Penn. I, I literally took almost every class in the major. I was so into it, like you know, all four years. I spent summers at Penn taking more classes. Oh my God. <laughs> I started taking like graduate level BBB classes when I could. Like wow. I was just really into them. All over it. Yeah. Uh, I loved it. You wanted to concentrate on I, I like loved the professors. I was like a psychopharmacologist in high school. I mean, I, I got kind of an early start on this <laughs> and definitely as a pre-med. I was always really fascinated by drugs in okay. the brain. And I picked a great time to be alive, you yeah. know, because I grew up with, you know, like acid and pot and PCP and all sorts <laughs> of interesting things. Yeah. And then when I was in undergrad, MDMA sort of became this hot new thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we heard about people. Dancing and taking ecstasy at raves. Yeah, but then I was hearing about like therapists and psychiatrists using MDMA and their work so And I was like so when you're when you're a pre-med and you're pretty sure you're going to be a psychiatrist And there's like a new drug that like, you know People are partying with but other psychiatrists and therapists are using in their practice. I was like, like what? what a glorious time <laughs> to be alive and It was just one summer that I was living on campus in the castle, that MDMA just sort of exploded on the scene. Oh, okay. Uh, and that was a very, it was a summer between my sophomore and junior year, and it was a really pivotal time for me. <laughs> so I have, you know, Penn absolutely fo- fostered, trajectory. you know, yeah. they, for sure. I mean, I was already completely sold on right, right, the whole right. idea Did of Did you know Psycho that you,
1: this would manifest, these interests would become like, manifest into psychiatry or was that just like that well i already tangent.
0: knew you know when i was in high school i was pretty sure i was going to be like a brain doctor okay, you know i okay, was very yeah. interested in the brain and behavior right. and drugs in the brain so i had already sort of ne- i knew i was like i was going to be a neurologist or a psychiatrist okay, okay, you know neurosurgeon okay. or something in the that. Like even yeah. in high school i was already like just <laughs> yeah that's
1: so, how so many i think that's how so many people are it You're happens sometimes yeah. it
0: happens sometimes that you, you know, have a, a passion. Yeah. like my daughter has always just been completely into theater and musical theater. Mm-hmm. It's all she's ever wanted. Yeah. why would I like make her be an accountant? Yeah, exactly. you know, <laughs> it's like this is your passion, then that's obviously what you should do. And you'll make your way. you'll figure it out. Yeah. Well, you know you'll we'll figure out a way to pay your rent. and yeah. that's like all you need to do. Like I absolutely <laughs> you so know, true. I never that's feel like game. I'm working, you know, because I love I really care about what I'm doing. I mm-hmm. care about MDMA therapy. Research. I care about cannabis research. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I tend to write books about drugs or about people taking drugs. I, you know, the last book that I wrote was for women. It was called Moody, Moody, Bi- Bitches. Moody Bitches. Yeah. And that's a book for women just to sort of explain to them that they're being overdiagnosed and overmedicated. And that a lot of the things that they're trying to medicate away are actually perfectly normal. And we need to just make space for them.
1: I see, I see. So important messages, um, and
0: I understand that some people absolutely need medications. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've got people with schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder in my practice. I'm not, you know, telling them to Anti, throw away yeah, their bottles. I'm not like anti-all meds. but exactly. I do think that um, some things are
1: medicalized for no reason. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
0: there's there's something called like cosmetic psychopharmacology, mm-hmm. which is like you know, if you go to a plastic surgeon, like, could you use a nose job? Sure, you know, I could take a little, we could make it a little straighter. Yeah. You know, it's sort of the same thing with psychopharm. It's like. I could give you pills that would make you calmer or could make you study more effectively exactly. or to make it there's harder, always one
1: step further. harder
0: to cry, easier to smile. You know, do you really have a major depressive episode? Are you know, do you really have these this diagnosis? Eh, it's all very gray in psychiatry. Right, right, right. You know, there's ash gray and there's charcoal gray. Yes. So yeah. it is pretty subjective. And, you know, there are some people who absolutely need meds. And then there are some people who... May, you know, their life may be a little easier and more comfortable on meds, but there's also other ways to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in what the other ways are.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, when you've written these books on these topics, do you think the impetus has come from kind of being not okay with the things, the way things are in, in psychiatry and, th- and sure. then realizing the problems through that? Because yeah. I know you also wrote Weekends at Bellevue about your time leading the psychi- psychiatry yeah. ward. Uh, The night shifts, right, over over like 12 years.
0: So for nine years, I ran the psychiatric emergency room at Bellevue. I worked on Saturday night, Sunday night. I had like a 16-hour shift in the Psyche-R. And whenever I would like go to a party or meet somebody, they'd be like, what do you do? And I'd say, oh, you know, I run the Psyche-R at Bellevue. (laughs) And every single person, like to a man, would be saying to me, you should write a book. Mm-hmm. That's something I would like to read. You know, do you have any stories? And so I just, while I was at work, I sort of just it down. I took notes. notes. You know, I would work Saturday night, Sunday night, Monday morning. I would come home and I would just like send an email to my cousin or something, but I would copy it and put it in a file. And over time, and I would also just kind of make a list of you know, there was really like a narrative arc over those nine years, and a lot of things happened to me over those nine years. You know, I fell in love, mm-hmm. I got married, I had a baby, I had another baby, my friend died. Uh, my friend happened to be my boss at at Bellevue, mm-hmm. so there was there was all this sort of built-in drama. Yeah, I got punched in the face. I got stalked. Um, wow. You know, it turned out there was like enough dramatic there things was a that narrative, happened to yeah. me that I ended up, you know, writing a pretty great, entertaining right. memoir, and it wasn't very hard. Yeah, um, it was really it was all enjoyable. real life stories. Yeah. yeah, it's easy. And then <laughs> this yeah, happened, and then that happened. <laughs> I didn't have to make anything up. Yeah. I just had to change the names. Yeah. So, and then with Moody Bitches, it was this sort of dissatisfaction Mm -hmm. with with the state of psychiatry and particularly how women are treated in medicine and how you know if a woman goes to a medical doctor with with medical complaints there many times she is basically going to be told that you know she's stressed and she just (laughs) needs to you know take it easy and, and she's not sort of taken seriously about medical complaints and things like that so i really i wanted to frustration i wanted to complain yeah yeah yeah. and i wanted to change things and you know the same thing with the ecstasy book with the pop book i saw that there were problems and i needed to speak out it's not like i have this burning desire to write it was more that i just i want i want i do want things to change yeah you know i'm un i was unsatisfied in the late 90s early 2000s that mdma which i knew would be useful to the field of psychiatry was a schedule one drug with no prospects exactly. for research. And I had to sort of complain about it mm-hmm. and teach people, like, look, this really could be helpful. Same thing with cannabis, schedule one drug, very clear to me that it had medical Im- uh, implications. I had to just sort of write a book to explain to people what I thought. And I'm this new book I'm working on is really kicking my ass. It's really uh, very challenging for me to try to convey or talk about, but I'm trying to write about oxytocin, uh, which is a hormone of trust and right. bonding and how it relates to um, feelings of oneness, feeling connected, feeling unified, you know, and whether that is with a lover or a baby or your acapella group, uh-huh. um, but just this sense of oneness mm-hmm. and what that does for us and what it sort of does for us pharmacologically. You know, oxytocin is, is one of the things that helps us feel sort of hooked into something. Right. And when you're, exactly. not you personally, but when one takes a psychedelic And at the peak of the psychedelic experience, you may feel one with the universe, right? You may feel like everything is connected and that you're jacked into that. You're connected too, you know, that you're a child of the universe and you matter. These kind of feelings of unity, like a united state of consciousness. Um, That looks like it is sort of oxytocin enabled. Mm. Um, And certainly with MDMA, MDMA increases oxytocin levels tremendously. And when people take ecstasy, they can feel very trusting and connected and bonded. With their partners or with their therapist if they're doing therapy, yeah. So I started looking at at sort of episodes or situations where there is a connection, and whether you feel connected to the cosmos or your therapist or your dog, but mm-hmm. um, all, you know, with eye contact, with hugging, with orgasm, any any of these states of connection, right,
1: right, right.
0: Oxytocin is there. <laughs> like, okay,
1: okay. I just so making kept that connection. looking
0: and seeing, oh, there's oxytocin. Yeah, it keeps yeah. Keeps coming up. And us and them thinking, you're on my team, you're on their team, you're in, you're out. That's all kind of oxytocin-enabled thinking. Wow. So this this idea of, like, tribalism. So if I'm writing a book about oxytocin, I'm allowed to write about MDMA Psychedelics, nursing, childbirth, orgasms like all the things I like, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, touches every topic, so it does. It yeah. ends up touching a lot. Um, it turns out oxytocin is like a very basic, you know, it's a neurotransmitter and a hormone, right?
1: Yeah, so
0: it courses all through the body. Mm-hmm. You've got oxytocin receptors in your heart, um, it's involved in like blood pressure and like water, right, mineral yeah, balance. It's just, yeah. like, it does a lot, right? Um, it also. Enables neuroplasticity, mm. which is the brain rewiring right, itself, yeah. and it looks like that that's one of the reasons why MDMA-assisted therapy may be so effective, or why yeah. psilocybin-assisted therapy is so effective, is that there comes a time where there's a there's a bit of brain rewiring going on.
1: Yeah,
0: old connections are getting rid of, new connections are being sort of stabilized. That is all oxytocin enabled. So
1: seems to have a role in yeah, a lot of it turns out that yeah. writing
0: about this is a lot harder than talking about this Yeah, am yeah, like yeah. can I just tape my book you know like <laughs> I'm just I'm having trouble sort of figuring out a through line right. and a narrative arc and how do you talk about all of these things in a way that's not one when it touches wonky. so many
1: things it's yeah it's yeah. difficult to create a like, narrative like how do I how so do that's why right? you think it's the most difficult one you've it written so far it is no
0: question yeah. the hardest book I've ever even yeah. writing the book proposal it took me like nine book proposals <laughs> to even over like a year and a half to to get a point my agent would say okay we can send this out like <laughs> i'm just circling around these yeah, ideas yeah, yeah. Of, of connection and, and vulnerability and trusting and openness mm-hmm. versus uh being fearful paranoid shut off yeah um, and you it's can dichotomy. see this sort of this this dualistic way uh-huh, of uh-huh. being there are a lot of there are a lot of examples in in american culture right now of people being open, open-minded and fluid yes, yeah. versus sort of closed down and fearful. Yes, yeah. So to me but it feels so like partisan. an important time in our cultural history that it, you know it's coming to a real duel, a divide yeah a divide between
1: yeah that's here. openness and, and and
0: and being sort of fearful and closed right, off
1: right 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 so it seems like an important topic to touch on yeah and i know uh, you talked about your work with documentaries in the past but i know that the moody bitches book is has been like picked up for some kind of Like a show or like a show based? Okay, okay.
0: So the the best in terms of like movie to television, I mean book to TV or book to movie, the thing that was the most successful was actually Weekends at Bellevue, NBC Universal and Fox went in 50-50 on the pilot Mm. and they shot an $8 million pilot in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. I got to go to the set all the time. It was like a dream come true for an author. You know, there's like all these people like wearing, wearing moody bitches, you know, backstage passes to get to where they need to go. Like, I don't know, it was just, it was a very exciting it's time. It's like surreal, yeah. Um, and the pilot kind of sucked, I'm sorry. And like, <laughs> I thought it was going to be great, and then it just like, it was sort of, the problem was it was kind of uh, created by committee, there were like too many suits. Okay, you know, it was, okay. it was Fox and NBC. Okay, okay. And it just ended up being a muddy mess, yeah, and it didn't yeah. get picked up, and it was pretty terrible. So Weekends at Bellevue got optioned for TV even before it was published somebody the manuscript had leaked out and i got and i started getting calls from tv and movie people before the book uh. was even published so then moody bitches before the book was written the the proposal the proposal for moody bitches got leaked And before the book was even written, I was talking to TV and movie people. Okay, okay. TV, not movie. And so it ended up being, so this was uh, Diablo Cody, who wrote Juno, and Mm -hmm. has done other fabulous things. Yeah. It was her and Oprah. Okay. Uh, So it was me, Diablo, and Oprah, supposedly, like, you know, dream team at HBO. Like, what could go wrong? yeah. What could go wrong is that it never got made. Diablo wrote an amazing script. I loved it. Everybody loved it. It just never made the step to being filmed, which mm-hmm. happens a lot at HBO or Showtime. You know, they have a very deep bench and they, yeah, know, crazy filter. they have a lot of great ideas and not everything gets made. Yeah. And that is, I think, one of the things that's kind of making it hard for me to write this next book, too, is that I've gotten a, a taste of, like, you know, what can happen Media, to a book yes. if, it's, if it does well. And... So, you know, I end up not just writing a book, but I'm also thinking about, like, you know, you how, could, the best, this, you how can... could this be a TV show or a movie or have have legs beyond the book? It gets in the way of creating a book when you do that. Yeah. It's bad.
1: Do you think being being so present in the me- in different kinds of media has been essential to kind of spreading your message and being an advocate of decriminalizing all these drugs and destigmatizing.
0: I do a lot of media and I'm always trying to teach. You know, When, um, when Charlie Sheen, I don't know if you remember, but there was yeah. a time when Charlie Sheen was like having a very public sort of breakdown. Yes, I remember. Um, and I went on the Today Show and talked about the dangers of mixing alcohol and cocaine and mm-hmm. how your body actually makes a new molecule, cocaethylene, which is uh, more likely to cause strokes and heart attacks than cocaine alone. Um, so I, I felt very good that I had gone on national television at 8 o'clock in the morning in Today Show, which is a huge audience, and and warned them about the dangers of mixing these two things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, or like, um, I was on the Today Show like a month ago talking about the opioid epidemic and reminding people that methadone and buprenorphine each can lower the overdose rate by 50%. They can cut it in half. Mm-hmm. Like, people need to know that, that there are treatments, yeah. you know? So I like to teach. I'm all about harm reduction. I, I accept message, that people yeah. are gonna use drugs. Right. The whole idea with harm reduction is like, let's just cop to the fact that drugs feel good and people are gonna use them and telling them not to use them is a waste of everyone's time. Let's teach people how to be more safe. You know, if you're going to use drugs, this is a way to make them more safe. This yeah, is a way that, yeah. it's, that it's more dangerous. You should do it this other way. So that's mostly what I spend my time on. You know, if I do TV or, or like I've done a bunch of stuff for National Geographic yeah. or CNN, I want to teach people about, about mm-hmm. drugs and how and how to take them more safely.
1: Yeah. Why do you think they've been criminalized for so long? And like drugs that are so obviously have a medical benefit, or things like cannabis and CBD, they've been criminalized, put in Schedule One when they're when they obviously have these medical benefits. Yeah. So is it just like institutional? I
0: think there's a few things going on. Part of it is corporate greed for right. sure, and that was what drove it. And in the very beginning, what made pot illegal was corporate greed and xenophobia Hmm. mostly they used xenophobia to uh, further their agenda of corporate right so first of all this was a medicine called cannabis that doctors were using with their patients and people from dupont and i mean do you know the whole like anslinger story you know there's 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 i won't say mythology because it's accurate the things that happened in in the 1930s like Randolph Hearst had interest in the paper industry. Mm. DuPont was coming out with a synthetic nylon rope, so they didn't want hemp to be around. So you have two people who don't want hemp. Mm. Then you have the petroleum industry, who also didn't want hemp. And then you have the sort of racism, xenophobia of the Mexican migrant workers who are smoking pot or the black jazz musicians who are smoking pot. So the decision to make cannabis and hemp Illegal use the xenophobia to to further a a corporate greed agenda The reason why they called it marijuana is because the doctors didn't know it as marijuana (laughs) the doctors knew it as cannabis Mm. So the doctors actually didn't even catch wind that this was going on for a while and the doctors were misrepresented on the floor of Congress Um where they they said that the doctors were okay with this, but they weren't Mm -hmm. So there was real kind of shenanigans going on back then and um it's sort of been the case ever since then that, you know, this is absolutely a medicine, always was a medicine, will be a medicine, but for the short period of time in American history, uh, we were told it's not a medicine. Yeah. And you know, Sanjay Gupta did this great thing where he sort of said, you know, I want to officially apologize, you know, I bought into <laughs> yeah. this idea that it's but not a medicine and I was wrong. Here. You know, and I love that he that owned up sorry, to it. that he sort of came out and said um, I'm learning, I was wrong. You know, we all need to learn mm-hmm. that that there's something going on that's that's. Not okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's been incredibly helpful, yeah, I and mean, certainly I'm getting the word out on CBD. I didn't and know that plants. it had
1: that, it was also being studied to like combat drug addiction and cocaine addiction. and That's things like all
0: that. really new. And it's crazy no, that this is no criminalized one's and, about and it's that it's also
1: can <laughs> but, be used for. Well,
0: it's crazy. Yeah. The other thing about CBD is that the FDA approved it as a schedule five drug mm-hmm. for kids to take for seizures. Oh, okay, but if
1: when how recent but was that? A
0: couple of months ago, oh, okay. um, a medicine called Epidyalex that's used to treat seizures. That's pure CBD. Because I know they
1: featured that one story of that girl in As, the Wee in documentary. Sa-Jay. Yeah, right. in that documentary and the, the documentary. Yeah, yeah. Right. and she had so, nothing was working and for her.
0: Yeah, epilepsy. so so CBD helps childhood seizures tremendously. So yeah. we got FDA approved, a Schedule Five, which is the lowest controlled schedule. Mm-hmm. But the DEA said, yeah, but if it's not Epidiolex, then, it's, then regular old CBD is still Schedule 1. Oh. Like, that's just hypocritical. And yeah,
1: they're just going back absurd. on their own way. Right. It's absurd. It's absurd. But also,
0: in America, I can prescribe Marinol to you, which is 5 milligrams of pure THC. That's only Schedule 3. But pot is Schedule 1. That doesn't That's, make any yeah, sense either because sense. pure THC is more potent than cannabis, which right. has some mitigating factors, Yeah. right? Like cannabis, you've got the entourage effect where you've got terpenes and flavonoids and other chemicals in the plant that tell the THC to chill out. Yeah. When those prescription pills, it's pure it's THC, THC, no mitigating factors. Why is that schedule three and the plant is schedule one? No like sense. none of this makes scientific <laughs> sense. It doesn't make That's any crazy, sense. It doesn't translate to It's policy. illogical. Yeah. Crazy.
1: Uh, so in all of this craziness how do you how do you kind of take a step back and relax with your artistic outlet which is singing still I wonder Yeah so I
0: I am definitely still singing still a sting- <laughs> I am still, still, a, still, singer. A, still a singer <laughs> I know we were we're in the um, same
1: I'm I'm in counterparts which is an acapella group at Penn we do pop and jazz and Dr. Holland was part of that group when she was at Penn
0: yeah, so I was 80. wondering how you keep your. So it was like eighty three to eighty seven. Yeah, we did that. So, so how have you kept that was, a part you of know, your life? You know, for a long time, I actually didn't. It was the thing that was missing. Yeah. Like I I was a doctor and I was doing this and that, but I didn't have music in my life. And so the last like maybe ten, actually more. Uh, I my kids are eighteen and fourteen, and the okay. thing that really brought music back into my life was the kids. Kind of I started up. like you know I started playing my guitar again, and like singing lullabies to them mm. and singing Beatles songs, and so. And my husband is a musician. Okay. And we started playing together for the kids with the kids, and then as the kids get older, we had a family band, wow. the four of us called Family Mojo, and we had gigs. Like we actually Uh-oh. were like a working family band for a while, and then of course the kids got older realized how completely geeky and embarrassing <laughs> it was stopped performing with us um, and Jeremy and I loved it so much we kept performing and so we we created a band Jeremy and I called The Rivals mm-hmm. so we play like farmers markets and you know cool. art gallery okay, openings small, small, good, or whatever good, yeah. anybody who will have us yeah, yeah, yeah. we over the years we've gotten paid, great outlet. we've gotten paid in vegetables or uh, grass fed beef <laughs> or, or honey we're oh, just happy to play and play together
1: and I'm sure your and, daughter's interest in musical theater is like a embodiment. I mean she just grew
0: up all around music you know, okay, all okay. Around. yeah and yeah, like exactly. she's what's great is she's really good in harmony and like she and my son, when they when they sing together, they sound amazing. When Molly and I sing together, we sound amazing. Okay. Um, and That's Jeremy so nice. Jeremy writes really good songs. He's a great songwriter. I'm a good singer, but I've never really written anything. To yeah, speak yeah, of yeah. Musically, so he, you know, we have originals because duo. of him. Yeah. Um, and it is. It's a solid duo, and it's also it's helped us navigate our marriage. Actually, sort of working through the issues that come up in rehearsing and in performing, it's helped us. Figure out some very basic Interesting. Yeah. opposites. Yeah, <laughs> opposite yeah, facts yeah. About us.
1: Thank you, thank you for having this conversation and being here today. Absolutely, my Really pleasure. appreciate it. It was a great time.
0: Happy to do it. Thank
1: you. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in today. Our podcast here at Doctors Who Create are led by. Darlena Liu, and me, Shivnut Carney. If you have any questions or feedback about this episode or suggestions for future episodes, definitely tweet us at doctorscreate. Today's music was brought to you by A. Shamaluab Music and the band Night Float, formerly known as Trisomy Rescue. Thanks again for listening.